0: Well, all the uh, pro Martin, uh, Barton McCombie folks are going to come after us when this hits the news. <laughs> and be like it's not that bad. You guys have never run it yourself. I know. Well, that's why I was just
1: kind of curious. Like maybe we're just like really painting a bleak picture, but it's really not that bad. So.
0: <laughs> no, 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 no. Can't wait for the comments. We don't, we, we, yeah, yeah, yeah. We'll see if it if it creates a storm on social media. Hi, I'm LC, and I'm a storyteller. I'm a passionate chemist who loves to explore and tell stories about how chemistry can change the world.
1: And I'm Danny, and I'm LC's spirited chemistry co-host. I love to bring high energy and positivity to my chemistry, but also my life. Welcome to the Farm to Table podcast.
0: We're two chemists working at the pharmaceutical company Merck in the U.S.,
1: also known as MSD, everywhere else in the world except Canada, the U.S., and its territories.
0: And this is a podcast where we'll tell you stories about the people and the science behind the papers published by our chemistry group.
1: Each week we'll pick one to two papers that we recently published and introduce you to the key people behind it, and also ask them to give you a unique insight into the story behind it. Hey, folks, welcome to the Farm to Table podcast. Uh, We are now in season three, which is quite remarkable that this COVID fever dream back in 2020 has come to its third season. And I know, Elsie, you pulled um, some fact, I think, last year about the longevity of podcasts. Aren't we in some percentile at this point?
0: Oh, we are... Yeah, we are way past uh, <laughs> way past where most podcasts fail. I, yeah, it was something ridiculous, like no, something like 90% of podcasts don't have a second season and, and something like 50 don't have more than a handful of episodes. So kudos to our audience for sticking around. Um, the feedback so far has been good, um, and we're looking forward to bringing you a third season this year.
1: We are Define the Odds. And I can't think of anyone better to kick off season three than Charles Yoon. So Charles is here to talk about his uh, 2023 paper that was published in Angavant titled Practical and General Alcohol De- deoxygenation protocol, which was done with the wonderful postdoc, uh, Miriam McHale, who was a Merck postdoc. And this was actually in collaboration with Zach Wickens as well, who is a uh, professor at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. So Charles, welcome to the Farm to Table podcast.
2: Great. Thanks for uh, having me, Danny uh, and Elsie. Uh, big fan of the podcast, and thanks for the invitation.
1: So... Uh, Charles, we like to introduce our Merck colleagues to the rest of the world, and so would you just take a minute to maybe introduce who you are, what you do to Merck, and maybe a fun fact to help our audience like relate a little bit better?
2: Yeah, of course. Happy to do so. So I'm a medicinal chemist, uh, and I work at the Boston site, and I've been with Merck for about eight years. Uh, I've worked on a number of different project areas. Lately, I've been really fascinated by this uh, cool biological mechanism uh, called targeted protein degradation. I also spent a good portion of my time actually thinking about and working on building out our HTE capability, so high throughput experimentation, uh, as we've learned in in, in previous seasons. I'm also really passionate about engaging with the academic community uh, through conversations, through collaborations, and I'm really looking forward to telling you more about that uh, today. A quick fun fact about myself, uh, when I was in high school, I got the chance to be on TV for about five minutes or so. For some reason, a local news company thought a high school student doing a chemistry competition was newsworthy. Um, I thought it was kind of odd, uh, especially looking back now, but uh, that's perhaps my five minutes of fame, so to speak. Uh, probably the peak of my career right there. Um, but anyway, yeah.
0: If you think about what they charge for a Super Bowl ad, like that's million dollars worth of TV
2: time. So. It's yeah, probably not famous enough for uh for that so <laughs>
1: <laughs> that's funny I was uh I saw on TV like uh that YouTube um that went viral like 20 years ago David goes to the dentist. Do you remember this like the kid that gets yeah, yeah. And, and, he, and he's in the back seat well now he's in college and that's oh, followed wow. him throughout his whole life and it actually I think helped pay for college still to this day so. Charles, I'm just saying, if you can find that video, like, let's, <laughs> let's like start to loop it. So.
0: Yeah, yeah. Now we're talking. All right. So we also, uh, we also asked Miriam to introduce herself and tell us a little bit about her Merck postdoc position. I mean, Miriam Mar- recently started a full-time position. And also, um, what kind of advice you would have for folks that are interested in industrial postdocs. So we'll play you this clip right here.
3: Hey, Danny and Elsie. Thanks for inviting me to the podcast. I'm really excited to talk about the chemistry. Just a quick introduction about myself. I'm originally from Lebanon. I did my bachelor and master's degree over there, and then I moved to the States to pursue my uh, doctorate degree in organic chemistry at Temple University uh, within Dr. Sarah Wenger-Nuke's lab. And then after I graduated in 2021, I decided to do a postdoc in industry and particularly at Merck um, afterwards and the reason for this this decision uh, or let's say that I have many many reasons for that decision the main reason was my curiosity of learning new skills in particular uh, HGE and photochemistry so this was like a perfect match uh, for me, especially doing a postdoc at a big and reputable company like Merck where you can benefit from the immense resources available and also all of the smart people around you. And then the second reason that I can mention is the industry exposure, especially that I thought that I wanted to stay in academia after graduation for my whole PhD and that changed at the end. All in all, I am really grateful for the opportunity that I had and also all that I have learned.
0: All right. Thanks, Miriam. So, Charles, uh, while today we're going to talk specifically about this one paper um, that you did in collaboration uh, with Professor Wickens, you know, you've know, you been involved in a ton of industrial academic collaborations. This is a topic Danny and I are really passionate about as well, and we'd love to hear your perspective on it, sort of like what excites you about the space, why you do it, and obviously this, this requires discretionary effort, so tell our audience a little bit about why you think this is important.
2: Yeah, of course. So I think at Merck, we have a really unique opportunity to impact human health, and we also get a chance to think deeply about the types of problems that we tackle, especially as it relates to synthetic chemistry. I think in order to tackle some of the things that are in front of us today, we really need to think about partnerships with academics. And uh, I've had a lot of fun doing so over the past few years. I think what this looks like in practice is really helping our academic colleagues understand what problems we care about the most, uh, and then ultimately finding opportunities uh, where we can work together, where we can bring together different perspectives and different skill sets uh, in order to solve some of these tough problems. I hope that answers the question. Yeah, I really
0: feel like, Like problem selection is something that that we can help a lot with, right? I mean, sometimes pulling the curtain back a little bit and saying like, hey, these types of molecules are really hard to make, like do you have any good ideas or you sort of see a connection between a a new reactivity mode or a new reaction and that feedback can can really help someone sort of, you know, A, get that work funded because there's a direct link to potential applications, but then also sometimes just um, give them a nudge in a direction that can really help us. So following up on that, you know, so you're a discovery chemist, you're all about um, applying new methods, uh, ultimately, to medicinal chemistry problems. So uh, try to link that, you know, to the specific problem of alcohol deoxygenation and drug discovery. Like, why, why were you inspired to collaborate on this topic?
2: Yeah, no, that's a great question, Elsie. Um, so in the discovery chemistry space, we ultimately think a lot about how to map the chemical structure uh, to some sort of desirable biological function. Uh, So if we think about what that really means is, we really need the ability to manipulate chemical structure in a precise fashion um, so that we can get desirable biological outcomes, so that we can modulate physical chemical properties and the like. Deoxygenation kind of caught our attention because it's an example of late-stage functionalization. Uh, It allows us to remove alcohol groups where maybe they're not needed, uh, it also actually gives us a chance to compare directly a molecule that has an alcohol with the molecule that maybe doesn't have an alcohol. So, it's kind of multi, multiply kind of useful in uh, in 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 a number of different settings.
1: Yeah, I think the late stage functionalization is something that has been around for a long time, but I think we're still continuing to um, unearth new methods that are really impactful. And I, I, I always love to see new papers that come out in that space.
0: Yeah, I want to pick up on something you said, Charles, because I think maybe this is important for the audience, this idea that you could compare two molecules that are really only different by one atom being deleted from them, like this sort of matched pair analysis. Like if you think about most analogs that you make you'd have to go back to the beginning and resynthesize something mm-hmm. completely from scratch and so this way you can take a molecule that you have delete an atom and then compare the properties and really understand mm-hmm. you know if there's an impact and i think you know people probably underestimate how much work that can be depending on what it is you're trying to deoxygenate
2: right oh yeah definitely i think it's again right this this notion of precisely controlling the structure um, because because we find ourselves asking these questions all the time, right? We want to, say, pick up an additional hydrogen bond here. Does that impact potency? Does that impact selectivity? Uh, and again, these are tools that we can use to to test those ideas.
1: Yeah, so Tom Lyons, who is actually in Boston Discovery Chemistry right now on rotation, mm-hmm. uh, but he's part of the DPC group, I think came up with one of the best LSF um, analogies that I have yet to hear. Um mm-hmm. LSF is you have a house and you just want to change one window, where you know traditional approaches were like completely knocking down the house and rebuilding it all up from scratch. And I just thought mm-hmm. that was kind of like a really unique way to think about it. <laughs> so going back nice. to the deoxygenation protocol, um, you know when people think about a deoxygenation, I think the first thing that comes to mind is like a Barton Uh, You know these aren't great; they require like really stinky stuff, um, to- really toxic tin. Type reagents, and you know, while these are challenging enough to set up on a lab-based scale, uh, if you're going to go to kilos, um, it becomes even more difficult. And so, I guess from your perspective, Charles, what reaction characteristics do we like, you know, want to prioritize when we're going to develop any sort of new method, and what kind of went into account for this deoxygenation type reaction?
2: Yeah, no, that, that's a great question, Danny. Uh, I think as it relates to deoxygenation and. You could argue maybe this is true for just reactions in general. We want chemistries that are practical um, and also general. Uh, in in the medchem space, where uh, again, as I alluded to earlier, we want to test our hypotheses faster. Um, and in order to do that, we need chemistries that work on a range of different building blocks. We need chemistry that has really good functional group compatibility. Um, maybe I would argue that the uh, you know the traditional approach, right, reactions like Barton-McCombie. They're not necessarily that ideal. Handling tin is no fun, um, and you know, as it turns out, there are some uh, different methods that you could use to deoxygenate. Uh, you could think about using silanes for tertiary alcohols, for instance. Uh, but then you have this generality problem, right? Uh, that only really works for tertiary alcohols; it doesn't work for primary and secondary. So we felt there was a gap that was kind of worth filling uh, with some new chemistry innovation.
1: I guess. Uh... Elsie or Charles, have either of you ever run a Barton-McCombie deoxygenation? I never have. So I'm just like, I mean, I would – I probably would not because it is gross. But I was just curious. Any sort of reflections?
0: (laughs) Yeah, I've never run um, a Barton-McCombie, but I have one time – had to use uh, tributyltin hydride and um I, I mean obviously it was the first time i was using it so i was extra paranoid about yeah. the whole thing um <laughs> and the smell isn't great either um but it, it wasn't an experience i wanted to repeat and this is you know when i was in grad school so i've never had to repeat it since then
2: yeah same same experience for me i have actually i don't think i've ever actually run apart in my combi
0: OK, well, all the uh, pro Martin uh, Barton McCombie folks are going to come after us when this hits the news <laughs> and be like, it's not that bad. You guys have never run it yourself. I know. Well, that's why I was
1: just kind of curious, like maybe we're just like really painting a bleak picture, but it's really not that bad. So <laughs>
0: <laughs> no, 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 no. Can't wait for the comments. We don't, we, we, yeah, yeah, yeah. We'll see if it if it creates a storm on social media. <laughs> All right. So, Charles, I mean, for the last, I guess, five years or so since, since Zach, um, you know, started his lab, he's leveraged, you know, a number of photo and electrochemical reactions. And, and one of the things that's been really interesting is this use of formate salts as reductants to drive really a range of new reactivities. And so for the deoxygenation, I'm interested in sort of the genesis story of how you and Zach got together on this and how you ended up, you know collaborating on this specific project
2: yeah so we we actually started our collaboration talking about new electrophotocatalytic reactions i guess that's kind of a mouthful Um, what what we found is that the science and the data really pulled us in different directions as we thought about applying chemistries to important problems in in drug discovery Uh, so at the time um, we had miriam join as a postdoc fellow Ah, uh, kind of around that same time, Zach's group had really deepened their knowledge about using a variety of different terminal reductants and oxidants to change what's possible with photoredox, uh, and so it was just the perfect kind of um, uh, kind of perfect storm, maybe um, of 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 opportunity that uh, ultimately, you know allowed us to settle on, um, on, on deoxygenation as a really important problem uh, that has an important output. Uh, and that's really interesting kind of to study from a mechanistic standpoint. Um, as it relates to formate salts, and maybe I'll just uh, add a quick thought here. Uh, formate salts are really valuable for redox chemistries um, Historically, there's there's a wealth of literature that's known. Um, uh, and what's cool about formates is that they actually generate carbon dioxide radical anions uh, upon reduction. Um, and if you follow that uh, kind of thought process, ultimately the formate salt um, ends up as CO2, right? And this is a gas, and uh, this turns out to be really important because this limits the opportunity for back electron processes. There's actually another use of formate salts that uh, we have found ourselves uh, interested in, and it's uh, what we call these uh, hydrocarboxylation reactions, and this involves really thinking about intercepting the carbon dioxide radical anion that comes from the formate uh, with carbon-carbon double bonds, uh, and this actually is a pretty cool way of accessing carboxylic acid products
0: yeah yeah, and you guys had a second paper on that, so we'll make sure to link link that chemistry in our in, in our description as well. um actually, very serendipitously because we scheduled this you know <laughs> this recording a long time ago, but it turns out that Zach was here in Rahway today giving a talk. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's the perfect opportunity for me to ask him some questions as well for the pod. So we asked Zach the same thing, like sort of what drove the collaboration, what drew him to to working together on this topic, and mm-hmm. we'll play you that clip right here.
4: In this particular case, um, the project actually came kind of directly out of an ongoing collaboration between um, Charles' group and my group, right? So um, we had been looking at trying to identify the right reductants to kind of activate neutral photocatalysts and make them um, more potent. And as part of that work, we figured out that Formate can actually serve as a precursor uh, to CO2 anion. Um, this was pretty unexpected to us at first, um, and it's actually led us in a whole bunch of new directions, both just my group independently, as well as um, as kind of continued collaborations with Charles. Um, but the formate-based deoxygenation reaction itself, the one that, that Charles and I targeted, uh, we felt was a, a really kind of perfect place for us to go as part of this collaboration because it's had a potential for really significant practical impact, particularly we thought in the pharmaceutical industry. Um, and so that made it really a logical place to continue. Uh, That said, more broadly, I love working with Charles and other uh, industrial chemists that we collaborate with um, because they help us bring kind of a a really distinct perspective from what my group offers uh, and it has the potential to really enhance projects, particularly those that we hope have the opportunity for sort of a true practical impact.
1: So let's maybe dive into the paper itself, and I always like to start off the paper, uh, kind of looking at like how the reaction was optimized. And so, Charles, can you maybe walk us like through that because the reaction has a few different components. It has a thiol catalyst, has a reductant, mm-hmm. a promoter, um, all of this good stuff. And so, any sort of, of of insights or walkthrough that you could give would be really great.
2: Yeah. So uh, maybe to answer your question, Danny, um, I'll I'll start first by acknowledging the tremendous work that uh, the two graduate students, uh, Oliver and Aaliyah, uh, really kind of put into this project. They were the key drivers of this optimization. Um, I think in general, when we think about formate salts, we often find ourselves thinking about the nature of the counter ion. It turns out that has a strong effect on solubility. Um, and a little bit related to that, we also think about uh, the role that water plays uh, in some, sometimes enhancing that solubility profile. For photocatalyst selection, uh, and this actually relates to an earlier project, uh, but we applied the tools of HTE. So we actually screened a range of different photocatalysts, uh, and we found uh, that there were some situations where compounds like PTH actually performed uh, best, and there were other situations where things like 4DPA, IPN uh, performed best. And uh, again, I think that. Sometimes, you know, you go in with an open mind, you find some kind of new observation, and that can actually lead you down uh, a kind of different mechanistic, um, or, you know, you can gain mechanistic insight from those experiments uh, that can then ultimately uh, impact how you optimize the reaction. Uh, in this specific project, uh, Oliver and Aaliyah found that PTH with formate salts and an acid promoter led to the most productive deoxygenation reactions. Uh, and there were a lot of Variables that ultimately did impact the reactivity, but the key observation was that the acid significantly increases the rate of CO bond cleavage.
1: Interesting. Mm-hmm. Interesting. It was that like a serendipity type finding, or was that something just kind of like routine, kind of just throwing a few things in there and just seeing if what worked?
2: Yeah, I think no, great question. I think originally we were wondering whether the presence of um, either Bronsted acid or Lewis acids might uh, might play a role in again kind of promoting uh, uh, breaking that bond. Hmm. Um, you might also think it, it it could potentially make an impact on the um, on the uh, redox potential as well, right? On yeah. that benzoate. Um, again, I'll, I'll, we, we can touch on that a little bit later, um, but that uh, turns out to not be the case. We ended up doing some CV experiments um, and, and found that it's really breaking the CO bond that's critical here.
0: Yeah, I, it, we've seen similar effects in other reactions where there's some sort of homolytic bond cleavage associated with a redox event, and sort of teasing out those two aspects can really be important. Mm-hmm. So Charles, I mean, this was one of the really, really interesting scope tables that that we've seen in a paper because this reaction really does seem to have remarkably broad scope with respect to the types of alcohols that work. So I'm interested in hearing your thoughts on that and sort of, you know, were there any sort of surprising findings as you guys were exploring the scope?
2: Yeah, thanks. No, thanks for that, Elsie. So I think that um, as it relates to the scope, um, what's really cool to me is that it seemed like every alcohol that we could get our hands on uh, we could convert it to a benzoate ester, and then we could do these deoxygenation reactions. Uh, I think that's this is perfect, right? This is exactly what we want in MedChem: uh, the ability to do this on a diversity of substrates. Benzylic alcohols deoxygenate the quickest. This probably makes sense, right? It's a relatively weak C-O bond. Um, primary alcohols were actually the the toughest, um, but as it turns out, we could actually, uh, you know, um. Uh, take advantage of, of this different uh, differential rate uh, as, as it turns out. Uh, and we actually found situations where we could actually start with a dial that has both a primary alcohol and a secondary alcohol. And uh, depending on the sequence of events, we could actually um, either deoxygenate the primary functional group uh, or the secondary th- functional group. Uh, I think that's just really cool, right? This is exactly what we want from, um, again, studying biological activity uh, as a function of chemical structure. These are the kind of tools and reactions that we want.
0: So in terms of, like, in the lab when you're running this reaction, because not everybody who's listening is going to have run a photochemical reaction or even, you know, thought about how to set up one of these. Can you comment a little bit about, like, as an operation, how this is set up and how, you know, it actually does in terms of running that reaction relative to, other reactions that people might think about, and then any any limitations in terms of either functional group compatibility or things that people would have to think about in their substrate if they want to use this method.
2: Yeah, so maybe just to uh, talk about the uh, setup first, it's actually really straightforward to set up. Uh, we actually run a lot of our reactions just with uh, kind of the commercial uh, Kessel lamp uh, setup, uh, and we can do this in kind of batch mode. The reaction is not that sensitive to either water or uh, oxygen, and so. There's no glove box handling, uh, nothing of this uh, kind of complexity. The reaction itself is very functional group tolerant. Uh, I think this is just super cool. It's very robust. We were encouraged to see that heterocycles are well tolerated. Uh, Actually, a range of sugar molecules uh, work pretty well in this case. Uh, They're actually among our best substrates, Uh, and other ester functional groups that are non um, uh, kind of benzoate uh, esters uh, actually remain untouched. I think one of the cool things about doing this project in collaboration is that we were able to, um, you know, really have productive conversations with Zach's group uh, and offer some key insights into what are the state of the art methods for deoxygenation and kind of where they fall short and therefore, uh, you know, maybe where should we focus our attention? I think that really ultimately gave us um, a, a, a scope that tells, the user really what is possible, right? And uh, I think, again, this is, you know, showing that power of, of, of collaboration and the importance of bringing together different perspectives.
1: Yeah, like, I would say that one, like, one perspective that you brought into the paper that I really appreciated towards the end was bringing in these industry relevant examples. And um, you specifically, like, pulled upon specific, uh, instances in which industrial chemists were forced to rely upon one of these stoichiometric tin reagents. And you just want to do like a head-to-head comparison to how the um, photochemical uh, reaction went. And so maybe can you comment a little bit on how these experiments like proceeded and just overall, like how scalable is this? Like how big can you go?
2: Yeah, it's a good, it's a good question. So uh, again, I'll I'll, um, maybe first of all say that as as a with a little bit of a caveat here, right? I'm a medicinal chemist, so I probably think about scale a little (laughs) bit differently than uh, Elsie and Danny, the two of you think about scale. Um, For the medicinal chemistry scale, I think we like to see things operate on, you know, let's say five to 10 gram scale. We think that's very useful. That gives us useful amounts of material for diversifications uh, or to enable kind of, you know, talk studies. Uh, we can we can do that right so um it turns out we can do this in batch again with those kessel lamps uh, because the chemistry is so robust um it's works pretty well in that kind of 10 gram scale um yeah it's it, it also turns out that uh, even though originally we thought about this as individual steps and individual events um at least from the medicinal chemistry standpoint, it turns out we can actually do this all in one pot, right? So we can do, you know, benzoylation followed by deoxygenation, uh, pretty much in the same DMSO solvent. Um, and again, from a medicinal chemist kind of practicality uh, standpoint, we thought that was very attractive. Um, again, you you may have a different perspective from the process uh, from the process world that maybe that's not ideal because you're uh, not crystallizing something that maybe maybe you should.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think that um you know i i the vast majority of the world's reactions are run on lab scale right um and not everything <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know um and i and and i think photochemical reactions i think are ones that we've made tremendous progress in scaling in, in the last you know 5 or 6 years um and uh, i think it would be it would be really nice for us to to you know have this in our toolbox one day because you know one of the things that actually um I was talking about with Zach earlier when I was talking to him, was like this is a really useful transformation also in the context of bond construction because mm-hmm. it offers you probably a retrosynthetic disconnection that even though you don't need that oxygen in your molecule, the fact that you know you can take it out yeah. could actually be pretty powerful as you think about building molecules. And mm-hmm. sometimes we struggle as synthetic chemists to see those disconnections that you know, you've know you deleted a functional group from the molecule. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think seeing his paper, that was certainly one of my takeaways, was like, hey, I need to remember that if I have a disconnection that gives me an alcohol I don't want, there's a really good way for me to get rid of it afterwards. So it's something I should think about, right? So mm. yeah, 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 I think this will be useful.
2: Um, yeah, I, I was just gonna follow up on that kind of quickly. Um, I, I no, I, I really, I really think that's an important kind of observation here, LC, right? It's maybe this idea of what people call, I guess, like a traceless uh, kind of group, right? Uh, it's kind of like the ability to. Um, you know, leverage functionality, um, and then really just remove it at the end of the sequence. Uh, We actually did demonstrate this in the paper, and so we actually found ourselves interested in this trifluoromethyl cyclobutane uh, compound. Um, And so as it turns out, what we were able to do is start from a cyclobutanone. Uh, We would do an anionic uh, uh, kind of driven trifluoromethylation, which gives a tertiary alcohol, which through our benzoylation and deoxygenation sequence, uh, we could ultimately uh, uh, kind of burn off that functional group uh, and arrive at the trifluoromethyl um, uh, cyclobutane compound. right? So just wanted to kind of add that as a a kind of short anecdote.
1: Yeah, and I think that is something that maybe we could ask um, Miriam as well is about what does she see as the potential opportunities of applying a trifluoromethylation using this type of uh, protocol. So here is what she had to say about that.
3: Yeah, for the trifluoromethylation benzoylation, deoxygenation sequence, it is a really cool project that I started a couple of months before the end of my postdoc, and I really wish that I was able to see it through. Um, I believe that this transformation is powerful and has a big potential. Our vision was to do this sequence in one pot, aiming to swap an alcohol functional group, which sometimes we generate in a molecule, but we do not really want it, with a trifluoromethyl or like CF3 group that is attractive in a drug candidate. So for this project, I see a great potential to apply to apply it in late-stage functionalization. As the method already proved, it has great functional group tolerance, in addition to it being very robust and easy to set up.
1: Yeah, this paper was a hit. I remember when it came out, um, it blew up Twitter. I think it was a most read or highlighted. Like, it, it was it was featured a lot. And so I think looking back at all that was accomplished, like what do you think made this so successful?
2: Yeah, so I think with any collaboration, um, the important thing to me is bringing together complementary skill sets and perspectives. Um, I I really believe that we can tackle problems better together uh, in ways that maybe we can't do alone. I think what was really important in this case is that we had really excellent communication we challenged the things that maybe we held as, as, as assumptions. Um, we found good ways to work together across different geographies. We identified times where resources could be applied to accelerate the project. Um, and at the end of the day, it was just fun. So working with Miriam, working with Aliyah and Oliver, uh, we enjoyed doing the deoxygenation chemistry, uh, and then as it, as, as, as it ended up being the case, we found that uh, as we were studying these formate salts, we could apply the same types of approaches to things like hydrocarboxylation uh, reactions. Uh, and again, would definitely encourage folks to check out um, the indole hydrocarboxylation paper uh, if, if they're interested. Uh, I think it has some cool uh, observations uh, as, as, as well and cool utility in medicinal chemistry.
1: Yeah, we'll definitely drop that into um, the description of this episode. But we also had an opportunity to ask Zach the same question, and here's what he had to say.
4: Okay, this sounds kind of silly, but I think really the the secret sauce here um, was mutual trust, right? So Charles had been working with my group for a few years now, um, and we'd really built strong relationships um, between kind of every member of this team. And what that meant is that we all understood that kind of the goal here was to figure out how to make this project as impactful as possible. How to figure out how to solve real problems, and and what that that means is that um, we were very kind of open um, with critiques um, to what we had and, and trying to figure out um, how it really stacked up against other approaches to deoxygenate molecules or even prepare molecules with no um, deoxygenation procedure at all, right? Um, And so we spent a lot of meetings chatting with Charles about what sort of context he might want to use deoxygenation reactions, um, but where there wasn't a suitable process. Um, And and really for each scope entry and every synthetic sequence we kind of presented in this manuscript, we'd ask, is there any other way to do this that's competitive at all um, with what we're reporting? Um, and you know, in some cases there were, uh, but in in many cases there weren't, and and so we focused in more and more on the spaces where we we thought we were really having a, a potential for meaningful impact, uh, and so I'd say really that's the the biggest uh, kind of secret to um, the success that that we had with this project um, was that we really didn't get satisfied. Uh, until we were able to address real problems and and we were willing to hear that we weren't yet addressing the problem from Charles. Um and Charles was comfortable telling us that. Um then of course beyond um that kind of intellectual input from Charles, um I would say the high throughput experimentation equipment that's available at Merck is just is far beyond anything we have, at least right now at Wisconsin. And so enabling to this tapping into this enabling technology uh, really helped us get a more realistic picture of the strengths and weaknesses of the method as well as um, some kind of strategic optimization. Um, so it's been such a pleasure to work with Charles and, and I really look forward to sharing our, our next projects um, in this area soon.
1: Well Charles, that concludes uh, you know this recording and we really enjoyed having you on the podcast. I can't help but feel that there's that there's a product here like if someone were to take PTH, and maybe like mm-hmm. be in the sun, it like gets rid of a hangover or something. Like I don't know. I just feel like this deoxygenation, you would be kind of gassy though, right? You would burp from it. So maybe it maybe that's enough to turn people off.
2: That's a good way to think about it.
0: <laughs> Thanks a lot for coming, Charles. Really appreciate it. See ya, Charles. Yeah, thank you. This was a lot of fun. Bye. Thanks for listening to the Farm to Table podcast. This would not have been possible without our fabulous producer, Mark Partridge, and listeners like you. Be sure to check our episode credits where you'll find more details about the show as well as links to anything that we've discussed during the show.
1: If you find yourself craving even more info, you can find us both on Twitter. I am at Danny the Chemist, and LC can be found at, at, at Dr. LC Squared. But, of course, our show also has... A handle and that is at farm to table pod farm with a ph in case you were wondering where you'll find some behind the scenes action future episodes and sneak peeks and likely some random posts posts about chemistry snacks and
0: whatever else of course uh, we'd love to hear from you so please uh, interact with us on twitter feel free to post any chemistry papers merck chemistry papers that uh, that you found particularly memorable and that maybe you want us to build an episode around
1: So stay tuned, folks.